Welcome to Appointed. I'm joining you here on the shores of the Kitchissippi, a very snowy day in the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabek, otherwise known as Ottawa. And I'm incredibly pleased to be joined today by Vass Bednar, who I have heard so much about from my colleague, Senator Colin Deacon, Senator Wetston. I mean, people talk about the incredible public policy leadership you are demonstrating. I know you have, I don't know how many masters, but you certainly are well qualified on every every front in terms of education and you've been on you know expert panels on youth employment you have a podcast regs to riches that i love you are doing all kinds of incredible work that i don't even begin to fully appreciate much less understand and so uh but because of what i've been hearing and because of what Senator deacon has told me about i thought i have to get you on the podcast because my naive view is that if we could actually figure out some of the incredible work you've been doing in terms of competition and equality and tax fairness, we could actually fund all of the kinds of things that I've spent my lifetime trying to address, which is to try and create a more substantively equal situation for those who often don't have equal opportunities. So that's why I invited you. But how would you like to introduce yourself? I think of you as this amazing leader who I have to figure out how to follow. Are you kidding me? Senator Pate, Kim, thank you for having me on your podcast and thanks for your team for setting it up. You know, I'm a very lucky policy person in Canada in that I get to work with very interesting people, ask good questions. I think that's a a big part of public policy in Canada. And in terms of how I'd introduce myself, well, I'm the executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy and Digital Society. It's a new program. So uh, I helped to design that program and I teach in that program. I'm an adjunct professor of political science, and that lets me kind of stay immersed in all kinds of cutting edge policy issues as, as a very intelligent law professor was talking about with me last week is, you know, why, why do we even call it the digital economy? Is it the digital economy? So I'll stop rambling because I, I feel so, you know, humbled and energized and, and not deserving of your very generous introduction, but I'm keen to jump in and, and talk about things with you. You know, my work on competition opportunities in Canada and the, and the need to modernize the act or just really take a good hard look at it, all of it happened by accident. You know, a few years ago, McGill asked me to, could I write a paper for them? Could I do a short paper on on the state of competition policy in Canada? And I actually couldn't believe that they asked me. And I thought, oh, this paper must already exist. Like, let me just do the research first. And I just became more and more fascinated and intrigued by the history and and how things work or how things didn't work. And the last thing I'll say, because I am rambling, is for anyone who wants to learn about it, it's a, it, it does seem like a complex topic, right, where the barriers to entry might be high, but even just reading the legislation with some friends, what a boring, you know, obviously I have no hobbies, but sitting and just reading the actual core legislation is one of the best ways to learn about public policy in Canada. I just think it's something we don't do often enough. Well, I, you know, now that you've described all of that, I know what I'm going to be doing when I'm 75 and I get booted <laughs> out of the Senate. I'm going to come and do the, some free courses with you. Sure. Because uh, I think we, you can get free education then, right? And, and maybe by then I'll be able to figure it out. You can, uh, you, can, you can come meet our students now. There's nothing stopping you. We'll follow up. We'll follow up. 
I'd like that. I would love that, actually. So one of the things that I've known, so the work area mm. I worked in for the better part of four decades is around the criminal legal system. In Canada, yes. it strikes me the competition issues you're raising are linked to why Canada is one of the number one money laundering countries in the world as well. Mm. And one of the areas where we have the, you know, a high rate of inequality between those who have the most and those who have the least. So I know what I think about in terms of ways to try and equalize that, but what are some of the ideas you have? Because I have no doubt that you're going to open our, not just my mind, but also those listening about more ways that we could be working on these issues. You know, there is great research that shows that an increase in competition can contribute to a reduction in inequality overall, right? And some of what we see at its most basic level with the trends in consolidation in Canada is that through something, we have something called the efficiency defense, which is a way we kind of mm, defend or rationalize mergers that could otherwise hurt competition. And what we're seeing is that those so-called efficiencies are not, you know, as everyday shoppers, uh, as everyday consumers, as everyday Canadians, we're not getting the rewards from those efficiencies because it's giving more kind of larger companies pricing power, et cetera. So, you know, you mentioned inequality, also looking historically in Canada and just sort of pressing pause and saying, wow, our economic objectives have fundamentally shifted. Now, I don't know if it's too political to point to, you know, an inclusive recovery, you know, sustainable economic growth, building back better. But if those are our values that we're embedding in our, in our economic agenda now as a country, then is that fundamentally incompatible with this you know, efficiency trumps everything overall. In terms of things we can do better and how we start, I guess I've got good news and I've got bad news. The great news is that there are all kinds of competition adjacent or related issues that aren't dealt with under the act. What do I mean by that? In Canada, we've decoupled consumer protection from competition, right? Consumer protection is the purview of the provinces. And in the US, they, they look at those two things together. But there are lots of opportunities to start to introduce maybe more transparency for people around algorithmic pricing. Why am I seeing this price? You know, self-preferencing. I want to turn it off, right? Can we give more power to individuals to navigate these, you know, back to the digital economy, largely opaque, algorithmic-driven systems built on the data economy, built on the, the data of individuals? How do we help people navigate that, say no, opt in rather than opt out. I'm rambling a little bit, but from that consumer protection lens, I think it's actually a really productive one to think about some of the competition challenges in a digital economy. I think that was my good news. What was my bad news? Oh yeah, it's going to be really hard or something. People keep reminding me of this as if it will deter me, right? Like they're like, oh, you know, that's going to take a lot of time. It's going to be really hard. And I think that's exciting. I think we have these public policy processes to do difficult things. And I, I think there's really an appetite amongst Canadians, especially in this period where we're seeing food prices absolutely spike. Well, you know who's not seeing the gains from that? Producers, farmers. Yeah. We have family farms closing at record rates. Who's, who's seeing the rewards from that pricing? Shareholders. Not, you know, not the people who, you know, that's a different, you know, there are different stages of the food supply chain. And I, I don't purport to be an expert in that by any means, but I think people get that general sense of unfairness. 
I'm going to stop rambling in a second, but people will also remind me competition is not about fairness, which is true, right? Our competition legislation doesn't say big is bad. I know that. I'm often accused of thinking that big is bad. I've never said that. Let's be on the record. But um, what do we care about in Canada? We care about abuses of dominance when people get too large and they abuse that dominance. Well, if we have new behaviors in a digital economy that everyone's doing, no matter what size their company is, then maybe we need to talk about the behaviors and not just abusing dominance. If it's helpful to you, I'll go into that. But I feel like I took your question in 10 different directions. I think it's fantastic. And I mean, I'm going to go back to something you said at the beginning, which is sure. if we're if we're talking about values of recovery for all, mm-hmm. and yeah. then we we invoke policies that mean recovery of only some, how is that consistent with the value base that we're being mm-hmm. encouraged to think about? And during this pandemic, we've seen the intersection of race, class, gender, and of course, the the whole reality of those who have the most who have done well, and those who had the least are really worse off health-wise, and as well as economically. And so, you know, we're in the midst right now of trying to put together where we've seen the worst impact of the pandemic health-wise, as well as economically. And it looks to be a lot of the uh, predominantly racialized, uh, poor and women yes. workers who have been carrying the brunt of the labor, uh, whether it's with you know in care homes or whether it's at home with their children or with their elderly family members or disabled family members or whether it's delivering and you know and even during the snowstorm, um, the delivery people I could still see them coming around. Everything else was shut down, yeah. and you know we don't have adequate wages, benefits, and people can't afford not to go to work. And so I think, uh, you know, and and I'm reminded by my, again, by uh, Colin Deacon just recently that during this time, we're seeing bank rates go up, the service rates for Mm -hmm. banks go up. I was, I was railing on about being in the downtown east side and not being able to put money into a bank account for people who I wanted to provide some resources to because they're not allowed to have bank accounts because they're not seen as good risks. And then we have money lenders. And so now I'm rambling. But, you know, that's how I came to. I want to see a guaranteed livable income. Forget the the welfare, social so-called welfare system that requires people to look for non-existent jobs yeah. uh, with non-existent skills, not be able to go to school, not be able to get the training. It's completely antithetical to actually supporting people to get on their feet. It plunges people into abject poverty and then puts social workers who are trained to be caring uh, people to try and assist folks in a judgmental position of deciding who deserves and who doesn't deserve assistance is completely against all that we say are our values. And so, you know, there are a number of us, and I know Senator Deacon's another one, who support things like a guaranteed livable income instead mm-hmm. of social assistance and providing those supports. And what have you? What are your thoughts on that, and how would that fit into some of the work you've been doing about more equitable policies and laws? You know, under the Wynn administration, there were some pilots happening around Ontario. I mean, of course, you know, um, maybe the, maybe for your listeners, starting to starting to look at um, a guaranteed basic income. Unfortunately, those pilots didn't get too far. In terms of what I think, I mean, I I. I sometimes refer to it as a zombie idea, but I don't mean that to seem derogatory. It comes up, you know, it comes up again and again, but really I think it's time is starting to come. And 
perhaps because we've seen almost examples or proxies for a guaranteed basic income in the pandemic, right? I'll, if, I, if we reframe something like SERP that way, it was a, it was a great example of the government flowing money uh, to people who needed it that did not have strings attached beyond perhaps the taxation requirement. The, in terms of how I think about it, it, it comes up sometimes in a future work context as well. How, are, how is work being displaced or augmented by, uh, again, algorithmic forces, machine learning? What are we automating away? What work is left? Will there be enough work for everyone? But other aspects I think we shy away from in the Canadian context related to uh, the potential of a UBI one is, should it be geographically specific? You know, we know that the cost of living is different around the country and that's okay, that's normal. So it does, does the universality of such a wage make sense? Also, how do we prevent it from having the effect of suppressing salaries overall? Say, say, it's, say, it's, say it's a UBI is targeted. That's how I think it would probably come forward as part of social assistance reform, either provincially, federally, or both. But should it should we get to a point where it is universal? Would it act to just lower wages elsewhere because people know that that floor exists? I'm not sure. I'm actually not smart enough to know. It's just something I've wondered about. Maybe it's come up for you before. Yeah, oh, you're definitely smart enough to know. And those are exactly the questions people ask. And and in fact, we had uh, Premier, former Premier Wynne on the podcast the, wow. just at uh, the beginning of this this um, month, actually, and talking about some of these things that, in fact, the the big scary myth that's put out is that poor right. people will abuse the money. And just to be clear, I, when I talk about it, I'm not talking about a UBI or a, you know, a, a demo grant type of model that goes okay. to everybody. It certainly could be, as we've seen with the CERB, as you are appropriate, and we've seen with the child benefit and the guaranteed income supplement for seniors, right. it can be geared to income. And so there can be an income base. And, an, and we also know that we can pivot. We don't have to wait till the end of the year for a taxation cycle. We could actually have something that goes month by month and can be much more agile and responsive to people's needs. And PEI, the entire province has voted, you know, all all political stripes to do this. And during this pandemic, a quarter yes. of the people in PEI have been having to rely on food banks because of food insecurity and poverty. And so we have a province ready to go. And I think of it as much the way we had universal Medicare in this country, mm -hmm. that first Saskatchewan signed on, and then every province wanted it, and everybody said it was going to be too expensive. I actually think it the, what it may do to wages and benefits is what we've already seen happening because of the pandemic, mm. that people may say, hang on, people deserve to have benefits. They deserve to be able to take sick leave. They shouldn't have to go to work. They shouldn't have to stay in a shelter, you know, it, because they can't, they don't have benefits or their wages are insufficient. The fact that in this country, in 90% of the communities in Canada, someone working full-time at a minimum wage job cannot afford to rent a one-bedroom apartment, that's the travesty. So yeah. something that it forces some increase in wages, personally, I would be in favor of because most of the companies who are benefiting will continue to benefit and don't necessarily pass on those benefits to their workers. And so, you know, we've seen that in terms of the wage subsidies during this pandemic. So That's what right. we're talking about is really providing the resources for individuals to have a chance to get a leg up and out of poverty. And from the pilot in Ontario, then as short as it was from the 
the um, initiative in Manitoba, mm-hmm. from Initiatives Internationally, we know that when people have the opportunity to stay home, they do so in only two or three different circumstances. One is if they can't work because they're ill or and whether that's mentally ill or physically ill or two, because they're taking care of someone. Presumably, we want them to be able to do that. And yeah. three, because they're getting uh, skills, they're training. So they can get a better job or qualify. And so those are all presumably things we want to encourage, not discourage. And so, in fact, it's the myths and stereotypes about poor people that I think drive the opposite agenda, which is let's keep them stuck in abject poverty so they can't even fight against our policies. These are policy decisions. And Cindy Blackstock said to me, or not to me, but to a group of us that um, in November, a conference we were at, she said, how is it we can we can say that we can't get clean water, electricity, internet into poor Indigenous communities, and yet we can get it on the space station. And I thought, what a brilliant example of where these are policy decisions. These are not... You're right. And so, yes, it may take some time to figure out the mechanics, but it's really a policy decision. Will we continue to leave people behind or will we not? Absolutely. Policy decisions, prioritization, trade-offs, and leadership and champions is something I come I come back to in my mind too, which is why I'm so grateful for your sustained intellectual championship of this concept, right? Because I used to think, you know, in my in my younger days, RIP, that the best idea just won the day, right? If I just <laughs> if I just if it was just like the best idea and I wrote it really well, then everyone would see or just tweet it out. You know, if you have a good idea, tweet it out and then someone smart will see it and run with it because it makes so much sense. I fail to appreciate the need for persistence and patience, which patience for me is probably the hardest thing about participating in policy conversations of any kind, because like you, I've got energy and it seems obvious and this would be so good and let's do it and let's do it now and we can do it. Um, And you also have to fight against uh, how draining that can be, right? Because for a year, for how many years have we known that this is a powerful policy idea. And yes, it takes time back to the, oh, it takes time. It's kind of difficult. It takes time, but I'm so encouraged and I'm so energized that we see these more pilots on the horizon. And that's why we have a federation too. And perhaps this will be one of those positive things that come out of the pandemic in terms of, yeah, better support, better support for new ways for, for government to facilitate the success of people because that's what it's all about. Absolutely. And um, I'm still trying to learn how to be patient. So it's hard, right? (laughs) So hard. Yeah, it's is hard. Um, But you know, I have great faith. I mean, amazing leaders like you are coming and taking it take yes, absolutely taking the the reins and are going to move us forward. I just hope that many of us have the wit to get out of the way or to make the space for you to continue on in that leadership. So I you know, what do you think it's going to take? What do I think it's going to take? I mean, on the competition file specifically, it's a really fascinating one because, you know, of course, it's of major interest to business actors, right? Large, large incumbents may have a natural inclination towards the status quo, as well as many experts who have been taught that this is how competition works, full stop. You can have a bit of 
perhaps inertia. It's, it can be harder to reimagine it, perhaps. But I think we can learn so much. My biggest hope is that Canada learns a lot from the company that I think we're most proud of, which is Shopify, right? And what Shopify exemplifies is, you know, the digital infrastructure to facilitate independent entrepreneurs. And I think if we want to do more of that, we do need to be thinking about whether the Competition Act is maintaining as is, you know, appropriate for this day and age, number one, and if it's really facilitating the kind of competitive environment we want so that not only can we have people start independent businesses and, and start online marketplaces, but so they can scale those in a Canadian context. Absolutely. How about you? What's your hope? Well, I certainly, I mean, I keep hearing about the prime minister wanting some legacy projects and I know mm -hmm. childcare is a huge one and very, very important. Something many of us have advocated for. I mean, my kids are in their 20s and 30s now, and I was advocating mm. when they were babies. So that's one. But I do think this whole area is, uh, you know, tax reform and um, providing enough so that people have an actually have an economic floor, not yeah. just a great big chasm to fall into. And so people can rebound out of these situations. So it's a, a full economic health and social safety net that will yes. assist people to actually rebound from not just situations like we're facing now, but uh, from the, the the daily bumps and, you know, that happen just to people as humans. And so that's what I'm really hopeful will be the legacy for for this prime minister, this government, for all of us, and that future generations will benefit and not like you know, end up having to deal with some of the situations too many have had to deal with, not just during this pandemic, but during their lives. So I yeah. want to thank, thank you. If I don't know if there's anything else you oh. want to add. No, before, nothing special. Before. I mean, I feel like I could chat with you all afternoon. This has been so much fun, but no, thank you. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I would love to, uh, I would love to connect again because I am, sure. I am thoroughly enjoying your regs to riches and I, um, I know that I have so much more to learn from you. And so I look forward to any, any and all opportunities to discuss. And I want to thank you again for joining us today and for making me think and, you know, my brain try and expand as it, you know, this aging postmenopausal brain as it tries to wrap itself around new ideas. So thank you for that. And thank you for your amazing leadership. My pleasure. Thanks for your encouragement and support. Appreciate getting to speak with you. 